thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 27th of March. Welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Diana O'Carroll. This week we're looking for life on the edge. This is organisms that have survived in extraordinary places, including caves that are cut off from the outside world for millions of years, and also around hot springs on the ocean floor, kilometres down from the surface. And in the news this week, why the world's biggest waves are getting bigger, the first sperm grown successfully in a dish, and a new breakthrough in melanoma. Plus, we're also answering the question of where on Earth is gravity the greatest? Or is it the same everywhere? Send in your thoughts. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or post on our wall to thenakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook. That's on our Facebook wall. Or you can drop us an email. The email address, chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. First up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest scientific breakthroughs. Diana, what have you got for us? Well, researchers this week have reported that wind speeds across the oceans have increased, on average, by at least 0.25% each year for the past 23 years. Now, we don't know whether this is linked to climate change, but Ian Young from the University of Technology in Melbourne claims that it's an important but often overlooked variable in climate change studies. Publishing in the journal Science this week, the team used satellite data taken predominantly from Geosat altimeter readings, which they pieced together. And they found that wind speeds are increasing more in the southern hemisphere than they are in the north, and that the more extreme wind speeds are increasing by 0.75% per year. Overall, a quarter of a percent each year doesn't sound like that much, but it adds up to an increase in the last 23 years of between 5 and 10%. Now, the effects of this could be bigger waves, but the team actually found no statistically significant growth in wave height over the past two decades. Now, the heights of northern hemisphere waves seem to be getting only very slightly smaller, and the southern hemisphere waves were only getting slightly bigger. But neither of these changes were actually significant. And the researchers point out that this indicates wave height is determined by far more than just wind speeds, with other factors including swell and fetch. On the other hand, the largest waves in higher latitudes do seem to be increasing in height. And the authors point out that in more extreme conditions, this relationship between wind speed and wave height becomes more apparent. So you could argue that if wind speeds across the oceans continue to increase, the largest waves would grow even bigger. Now, this uh, could potentially affect how humans are able to exploit the sea, affecting fishing and shipping, for example, or it could be a positive boon to our efforts in wind farming. 
It's amazing to think that you can use a satellite just to measure the heights of waves, which is what they did, because you can see the wave crest. But why do they think that this is uh, an important discovery? Because you've said that really the waves are not getting that much bigger. So it, should we be worried? Well, I think at the moment, no. But the point is that this increase has been quite constant. And the other thing is that it does affect extreme conditions. And it may be one of these systems where you end up getting a kind of tipping point. So once the wind does increase to a certain level above its sort of yearly average, then you might get quite a serious effect on wave height. Good for surfers, though. Yes. Because you like windsurfing. Uh, yeah, I went for a little session yesterday, feeling quite tired. Thank you, Diana. Well, one other big breakthrough this week is that scientists have solved a mystery that they've been trying to crack for at least 70 years. And that mystery is how do you get sperm to grow in a dish? Now, it might sound a bit trivial, but actually it's a really important discovery, this, for various reasons. And what scientists have done over the last 70 years has been to try to persuade the stem cells that in a testis mature to form sperm cells actually in a dish but they've never managed to do it but now this group who are based in japan it's takahiko ogawa and his colleagues they're at yokohama city university over in japan they've published their method this week in the journal nature and it really works so what they did was to take a small sample of testis tissue because they reasoned that the reason that you can't make sperm cells grow in a dish is perhaps because the cells need the three-dimensional environment and nourishment provided by all of the other supporting cells and stem cells that are in the testis. And by taking a small piece of the testis, in this case they used uh, very, very young mice, and they put this small piece of tissue in a culture dish, and then they used a very specialised way of nurturing the tissue. So they grew it in a sort of agarose, sort of jelly-like material, that they also supplied with growth factors and other nutrients. And they also did another clever genetic trick, which was to use mice that had been genetically engineered so that when they produced a sperm cell, which contains half as much genetic material as a normal cell, then it would glow green so they could spot them easily. And what they found is under these clever conditions, they started to produce glowing green cells. When they examined them, they could see that they actually had cells that were consistent with being mature sperm being produced over several weeks. It took a few weeks of culture to make this happen. But then the real clincher was that they were able to take those sperm cells and fertilise an egg to produce viable baby mice, proving that they're actually producing really live, viable sperm from this technique. That is really impressive, but how can this help people? Well, it's a good question, because um, it does sound, as I said at the beginning, a little bit trivial, but it isn't, because there are many, many examples of where people can't produce viable sperm, and this leads to infertility. One very important consideration is there are some people who have to have various medical treatments, for instance, chemotherapies for cancer, and those chemotherapies can destroy the environment in the testicle or the stem cells themselves that make the sperms, rendering someone infertile. And at the moment, people do bank away sperm before they have those kinds of treatments. But the problem is that that means there's a limited supply of the tissue, there's a limited supply of sperm, and if the sperm doesn't work very well, then the person may actually not be able to reproduce after they've got better from their cancer. So with something like this, you could take a small sample of the tissue and then produce as many sperm as you needed later. OK, so what are the costs of preserving sperm versus using this amazing new technique? Yeah, good question. Well, to actually bank away sperm is very, very cheap because all it involves doing is collecting a sample of semen and then you freeze it in liquid nitrogen at about minus 200 degrees. Um, this has been used for many, many years for not just sperm but eggs and other tissue as well and it seems to keep the tissue viable but again, it's a limited amount of tissue that you are able to store that way and if you use it all up, 
you've run out, or if something goes wrong with the storage, you've lost it. Whereas if you have tissue that can reproduce new sperm from fresh, then that's got to be a much better outcome. It will be more expensive, but at the end of the day, it's probably going to be better medically to have that option open to you, I would argue. And on the subject of cancer, this week has also seen a breakthrough in the field of melanoma, a form of skin cancer that's becoming increasingly common. In fact, the incidence of the disease has doubled in the last 10 years. But now there's some good news because, with the help of a tank full of fish, scientists at Harvard University have discovered a gene that drives the disease and therefore could hold the key to new ways to treat it. To explain more and talking to Chris, here's the author of the work, Leonard Zon. Well, my laboratory has been focusing on melanoma, which is a very deadly skin tumor. Um, And we had developed about five years ago a model of melanoma in the zebrafish. Um, In this model, we took the human gene uh, that's known to cause melanoma, a gene called BRAF, and we overexpressed it in the zebrafish um, in combination with another gene, P53, which is the most common mutated form of a tumor suppressor gene in humans. And that combination led to fish that develop melanoma. We're able to study those tumors, and they really resemble very uh, very similar signatures of genes uh, to what you would see in a human tumor. And so with that, we wanted to understand whether we could use this model to find new genes that cause cancer or find uh, new therapies that might uh, be used for the treatment of melanoma. We knew there was a region on human chromosome 1 that was amplified in about 30% of all human melanoma. And we studied that region and found that there were 54 genes in that interval. And um, we then looked at gene expression among 100 human melanomas, and we found that 17 of those genes were expressed very highly. And so we needed to figure out which was the driver gene, which was the most important to the cancer. And so what we decided to do was to take each of these 17 genes and to inject them individually into our zebrafish embryos at the one cell stage, and then to grow up those fish and count how many fish developed melanoma. And what we found was that one of those genes, a gene called SETDB1, um, had the ability to greatly accelerate the melanoma. And this was likely the driver gene in this uh, particular critical interval. And is this representative of what you think goes on in humans? In other words, if you were to take human melanomas, real clinical tissue, do you see this same gene, this SETDB1 gene that you've now discovered to be involved, also mutated in the human problem? Well, that's right. So 30% of human melanomas will have amplifications of SETDB1. And we went on to show in this paper that actually 70% of melanomas will overexpress SETDB1. So it's something that's central to being a melanoma, uh, a tumor, is to overexpress this particular gene. Um, So I think that over time, we'll be able to see that this gene also participates in other cancers too. And this region is also amplified in other tumours of humans, such as lung tumours and also breast tumours. We'll come on to what SETDB1 might be doing in a second. But first of all, if 70% have it, what about the 30% of human melanomas that don't? What's going on in them then? Well, the way I think about this as an oncologist, if I um, see a patient, I'll often uh, describe their tumors as, let's say, poorly differentiated or well differentiated. And what that means is that I can actually classify them by how the tumor looks like under a microscope. We think that uh, melanoma isn't a single disease, but there's actually different causes of melanoma. Um, And so there's different driver genes depending on uh, where the melanoma arises on your body um, and what types 
types of exposures to carcinogens or light, sunlight is often thought as an instigator for the melanomas. So um, with all these different options, uh, the tumors could be heterogeneous. And so what we would say is that the 70% that uh, overexpress SETDB1, that must be one category. And then the other 30% have a different uh, classification and probably represent a different stage or a different location of those melanomas. So what do you think SETDB1 is doing? Well, there's a new field that's blossomed over the past uh, five years called epigenetics. And epigenetics deals with things that aren't inherited in a typical genetic manner. We're used to mutations, let's say, being inherited genetically. But in this particular case, um, DNA is actually wound around a spool. And uh, that spool is a set of proteins called histones. When the DNA is wound too tightly, um, the genes are shut off. When DNA is wound loosely, the genes are on. This gene, SETDB1, seems to wind the DNA a little bit too tightly, and that shuts off particular types of genes that have an identity in the melanoma. So, for instance, one class of genes that we found are a gene set called the Hox genes, which regulates the body plan normally of how embryos develop. But we think that somehow this gene alteration in terms of expression leads to a change in the cell fate, and that makes the tumors more invasive. And does this in turn also give you new strategies for how to combat melanoma? Because the survival prospects for someone who's diagnosed with an advanced melanoma are really dismal at the moment. So are we going to be able to do something about it with this discovery? So um, SETDB1 is an enzyme that actually methylates the uh, uh, histones, and that regulates whether the DNA is tightly wound or not. And so because it's an enzyme, it's possible to make inhibitors to this enzyme. And so we're in the process now of talking to drug companies to think about inhibiting this particular enzyme, and we think this would be uh, a wonderful treatment for the patients, 70% of the patients who overexpress this gene, who have melanoma. Harvard scientist Leonard Zahn talking to Chris Smith there. He published that work this week in the journal Nature. Well, also in the news this week, scientists from Harvard and the University of Science and Technology of China have worked out how the lily pops open when it blooms. Now, they looked at the Asiatic lily, otherwise known as Lilium Casablanca. Researchers Liang and Mahadevan marked the bud with dots along the inner petals and outer sepals. Now, these are usually the green leaf-like parts underneath the petals. They then set up a camera to track the dots as it grew. Now, publishing in PNAS, they found that the petal and sepal edges lengthened 40% more than the midribs. And these are the central veins which go through a petal, or you can see them in a leaf as well. And this disparity in growth created that characteristic wrinkling that you see along the edge of a lily petal. Now, the authors say that this difference in growth causes stress to build up inside the bud, and the forces eventually exceed those keeping the bud closed, causing the flower to burst open. Previous studies have argued that it is actually the midrib which causes the popping open of the lily. So to test this, the researchers actually shaved it off the petal. Lo and behold, it still popped open as normal. Now, why is this important? The authors argue that it can be mimicked in technology for designing these little thin film motors which would need blooming explosions on a very small scale. 
I was going to say that or, for instance, people have informed how to make solar panel arrays unfurl in space by using similar sorts of designs. If you look at how flowers do it by storing energy in different bits of the structure so they then pop open and adopt a stable configuration, you've got the perfect compact design for sending panels or whatever into space, radar dishes and so on, so it then pops open and adopts this new stable shape. Yeah, it's a great idea when sort of space and uh, energy is limited. Absolutely. Thanks, Diana. Well, also this week, we've talked about stem cells that can produce sperm cells. Now, scientists have managed to find a way to produce some of the critical structures in the eye that may be needed to repair the visual system in people suffering from the condition age-related macular degeneration. Now, this is important because AMD is going to become more and more common because we have an ageing population. What's happening with macular degeneration is that the photoreceptors, these are the specialised cells in the retina that convert light photons into brain signals, those cells degenerate, chiefly in the region known as the macula, hence the name, the macula being the most concentrated area of photoreceptors in the retina, which we use when we're doing very high acuity visual tasks like watching television, reading a book or looking at someone's face. So you end up with a big black hole in the middle of your visual field. Now what scientists have found is that if you can put new photoreceptors into the eye, they can wire themselves in and restore vision. They've shown that in mice, suggesting that if we can get a population of cells of the right type and put them into a human eye, we may be able to restore sight to people who are losing it because of this kind of disease. And this has come a step closer this week thanks to a paper that's published in the journal Stem Cells. It's by Maria Kokinaki and her colleagues. She's based at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And what they have discovered how to do is to reprogram skin cells to become the retinal pigment epithelial cells, which form the RPE, or retinal pigment epithelium, at the back of the eyeball, which nourishes and supports the photoreceptors and is thought when it goes wrong to be part of the process that triggers AMD. So what they did was to take fibroblasts, skin cells, from an adult human and then use a modified set of viruses to move into them four genes. They were OCT4, SOX2, NANOG and one called LIN28. That's not so important as the fact that what these genes are known to do is to wipe the genetic slate clean in the cells they're added to to turn them back into a non-specialised stem cell-like cell called an IPS cell or an induced pluripotent stem cell. When they cultured these IPS cells under the correct environment, they were able to make them turn into new retinal pigment epithelial cells in the dish. And they then describe in their paper a whole range of different tests and techniques they do, including biochemical assessments, morphological assessments, functional assessments, and also genetic assessments of the behaviour of these cells. And as far as they can tell, they behave identically to mature adult retinal pigment epithelial cells that you would find normally in the eye. Now, that sounds like great news, but the only fly in the ointment is that actually genetically the cells seem to age faster than they should. They've got increased telomere shortening, the telomeres being these sort of end caps on the chromosomes that are eroded every time the cells divide. The new RPE cells they've made have shorter ones of those than they should do, and they also have some genomic instabilities, which the team think is because of the techniques they use to reprogram these cells back from skin cells. Even so, and that aside... The fact that they're able to turn skin cells into healthy eye cells suggests that we just have to overcome the slight genetic problem and then we've got a very viable technique in order to rescue back from people who have AMD healthy vision if we can get these cells into the eye. 
Anyway, if you would like to follow up more on that story or anything else we've been talking about, then the references and some transcripts for all of those stories are on our website. You can find them at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. On the way, life that thrives where the sun don't shine. We'll be diving beneath the waves to explore the complex life that's sustained by hydrothermal vents on the ocean floor. And we'll also be talking with the first British scientist to enter a cave in Romania where some very strange species have evolved. Diana. But now, an important resource that we find in deep, dark places are metals and minerals that we need for industry and everyday life, which means that mining minerals like copper and platinum is a multi-billion pound industry. Dave and Mira have been out exploring how you separate the metal we do want from the rocks we don't. This week, Dave and I are exploring the process of mining, so where our metals and our minerals actually come from. Dave, it's not as simple as just digging them out of the ground, is it? That's right. When you normally think about mining, of course, you think about digging stuff out of the ground, and then you learn in school about taking those ores and smelting them, turning them into a useful metal we can use every day. However, there's a big, really important process in between that. The ore which you dig out of the ground is a combination of rock and the useful minerals we want. The problem is the proportion of the useful minerals can be only maybe 1% or 2%, and that's still worth extracting. And this process of extracting the valuable minerals out of the rock is incredibly difficult. Originally, this was done by processes like panning. You swirl water over a mixture of sands, and the densest ones fall to the bottom. But doing this on an immense scale is a very, very difficult process. Well, one scientist looking into this separation process is Professor Jan Silliers from Imperial College London. Now, we've come down to the Royal School of Mines in central London to find out a bit more about this. I think maybe we should take a step back and just look at the the scale of the mines we're dealing with nowadays. The copper mines we're talking about treat literally tens of millions of tonnes of rock a year to produce hundreds of thousands of tonnes of copper. But within the mine, maybe only 2% of the rock we mine is valuable mineral and the other 98% is waste. And in order to do the separation between the valuable minerals and the waste minerals, we need to grind them very finely down to, let's say, less than a tenth of a millimetre approximately before we can do the separation. This is called liberation. And we, once we've ground up the rocks and they're liberated from each other now, we actually want to do the separation from the valuable minerals to the non-valuable ones. The workhorse of mineral processing nowadays, where we have to separate out these very small amounts of minerals from each other, is a technique called froth flotation, which depends on the hydrophobicity differences between different minerals. In this case, we make the one mineral we do want hydrophobic, meaning water-hating, blow air through this mixture, the, a slurry or a, a, almost a, a mud of the mixture of minerals. The hydrophobic particles stick to the bubbles, float to the surface, and form a continuously overflowing froth that contains all our valuable minerals. So are the valuable minerals chemically different, so the uric additive can make them hydrophobic? They have to be. And in this case, um, nature's made it so that the valuable minerals are, are sulfide minerals. They are copper iron sulfides or copper sulfides, something like a, a chalcopyrite, as it's called, versus an oxide mineral, which is our gang or our waste minerals. The other 98% is, is that. And so it's quite relatively straightforward for this chemical to attack the one mineral versus the other one and make it hydrophobic, whereas it ignores the other ones and leaves them hydrophilic, water-loving. And what is the chemical used then to make them hydrophobic? We do use two chemicals commonly. The first ones are the xanthates and the second ones are the diethylcarbamates. And they 
both are long hydrocarbon chains with a, a reactive front end that, that looks for sulfur. And it attaches to the sulfur or, or chemically attaches to the sulfur, leaving a long hydrocarbon chain in the solution that looks oily, if you like, and makes the uh, mineral look hydrophobic and act like it um, hates being in water. So what types of minerals is this process used to extract? Pretty much all the base metals, copper, lead, zinc primarily, and many of the other metals are associated with the base metals. So platinum comes up as a a nickel-copper-type deposit. Silver often comes with lead. And all the major gold mines in the world now, the gold is actually a byproduct of the copper production. What's the scale of this process industrially? At the moment, the flotation process for copper accounts for about 70% of the world's production. If you look at a typical mine in um, North America or in Chile, where the massive copper mines are nowadays, a typical mine would maybe treat 10,000 tonnes of rock an hour. That's a cube of rock 15 metres by 15 metres by 15 metres every single hour. So the scale and the tonnage is just unimaginably large. And the tanks themselves then that the rock is in and the the bubbles are being pushed through? The biggest tanks nowadays are 300 to 400 cubic metres each and a typical mine would have 60 to 70 of these tanks in a row. So uh, yes, we're talking about aircraft hangers of froth. This process has been used for about 100 years now. So, I mean, we're in your lab where you study the foam and flotation process. What aspects of this are you studying to further it or enhance it? We've been looking at the physics of the froth, the bubble size, the velocity at which it flows, and what variables affect that. We've got a large kind of water bucket slash tank in front of us with a a gutter around it, with many tubes going in, many tubes coming out, laser monitors on top as well as cameras attached. So I imagine you initiate a foam here, but what are you actually monitoring and and how? As you see, the tank is containing our, our slurry, The froth is forming inside that and overflowing the edge into what you call the gutter, we call the launder, and then overflows into a recirculation tank and through the pump, as you can see. What we're measuring is two things. The one is the height of the foam overflowing the the edge of the tank and the velocity, which we measure with the video camera you can see in the back there. We are trying to measure the volume of the froth overflowing. So we need a velocity, we need a height, and of course we know what the length of the lip is. And that, if we multiply those three together, we get the volume of the froth. I guess the depth at which the froth is overflowing is quite important because if there's, it hasn't had time to separate out and you're sort of pumping froth, froth through too quickly, you're going to get lots of other minerals mixed in. And if you go too slowly, you're just not going to get enough production from your system. What we've discovered over our years of research is that the rate at which the bubbles are bursting on the top surface is the critical parameter for controlling this process. So if the bubbles are bursting, you're essentially losing the separation which the bubbles have done already for you? If there's too much bursting, we lose the mineral we want. If there's too little bursting, we collect too much of the minerals we don't want. And it's that delicate balance that we're trying to optimise here. The main variable we've to control the, the rate of bursting is how much air we put into the tank. Is this something that's controlled and monitored on industrial mines at the moment? In some mines it is. It's not necessarily controlled, although there's moved towards that. We'd like to see that implemented far more widely and that this technique of monitoring the volume of froth overflowing um, is used as a, as a control measure. If you look at a typical copper mine, we recover about 90% of the minerals that come into our process, and we lose about 10%. If we push that to 91%, that extra percent is worth, say, $20 million per annum. So there's a big incentive for us to get this right. 
What a lot of money. That was Jan Silliers, Professor of Minerals Processing at Imperial College London, taking Mira and Dave through the copper separation process. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. And you can get in touch with us if you want, uh, as Berrigan Betts in Second Life did, who was commenting on the story we ran earlier about the scientists in Japan who are managing to grow sperm in a dish. Berrigan Betts says, do sperm actually multiply? I thought they were end stage, implying that they couldn't themselves divide. That's absolutely right. Sperm can't. But what they've been able to do is to make the cells that are the stem cells that make the sperm grow in the dish and then produce sperm in the dish, which is the thing that's eluded scientists for many, many years, and that's why it's such a big breakthrough. One reaction to your story, Diana, about wave heights and wind speeds, John in Cherry Hinton says, are changes in wind speed causing changes to our weather systems? Are they affecting, for instance, the Gulf streams and the jet streams? That's a really interesting question, and I think the answer is we don't know. Um, The researchers only really looked at wind speeds and wave heights, So, and and the Gulf stream and uh, jet stream systems are so complex and have so many factors involved in them, it's difficult to know how wind speeds might affect them. I mean, perhaps the Gulf stream, which can determine wind speeds because of the heat that comes off the ocean and so forth, that almost certainly will have some kind of interaction, but I've no idea what it might be. And also factoring in the fact that if we're going to shed ice from the Arctic because of global warming, this will put cool water, which is also fresh water, into the sea, and this could affect the conveyor systems that carry that warm water around the globe anyway. So the whole thing could change, but for other reasons as well. Exactly. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Diana O'Carroll. And as I mentioned, we are looking at life that flourishes in the absence of input from the sun. In other words, some of the most inaccessible places on the planet. Now, one of them is Mavila, which is the cave in Romania. This was discovered 25 years ago. It's got no natural entrance, and we think it's been cut off from the outside world for over six million years. But nevertheless, it's home, it turns out, to a thriving ecosystem of complex life, including water scorpions, worms and spiders, and they're all surviving in the absence of any energy input from the sun. Fewer than 30 people have been in this cave to date, but last April, Warwick University microbiologist Richard Bowden became the first British scientist to go in, and in fact he's going back very soon to continue the work that he started. But today he's with us to to, uh, tell us a bit more about this extraordinary place. Hello, Richard. Hi. So, first of all, set the scene for us. This this cave sounds fantastic. Yeah, it was um, discovered accidentally, as these things tend to be, um, 25 years ago, as you say. It's located in the very south of Romania, near the border with Bulgaria, close to a city, Mangalia, which is a very geothermally active area. There's a lot of sort of um, methane seeps and sulfidic mud. It's a sort of spa town, really. And near there is a sinkhole um, known as Obanul Mare, which is just outside the city. And 25 years ago, it was thought this might be a good place to build a geothermal power station. So a series of prospecting shafts were dug about 30 metres deep, and one of them struck scientific gold, really, when it crashed into the um, tunnels of this cave, which they then sent the cave scientists down and discovered it had no entrance at all, promptly sealed it up, plans for the power station were cancelled, and it's been being studied ever since. How did they know that there was this extraordinary ecosystem in this cave? 
Um, basically, they went in and had a look. Um, they took uh, Christian Lasku, who is now the editor of National Geographic in Eastern Europe, went in and had a look. He's a very prominent cave scientist in Romania and had a crawl around, discovered a chamber about 15 minutes, I guess, crawl into the cave, which is flooded. It contains a lake. We refer to it as the lake room, which was absolutely crawling with insects and amphipods and spiders and what have you and immediately had the cave sealed off so it could be studied. How do they know that this cave is completely divorced from the outside world? So, in other words, there is no energy flow from the sun going in there? Sure. Well, there's a number of reasons. One, we know there's no rain, um, no rainwater seeps down into it because of a very thick layer of hydrophobic clay located above the cave. There's no stalactites in the cave, no evidence of water coming in. Um, 1986, when the cave was discovered, was also the year of the Chernobyl disaster, and the surrounding soil in that area of Romania was covered in radioisotopes, but the cave was not, and still is not, um, containing those isotopes. So we know from that extent it's sealed off. It's also devoid of the bacteria that we would usually associate to faecal matter that would be found in the surrounding farmland and from obviously humans that go in is completely devoid of those and we've checked that recently and there is still no contamination even though people have been going in and out for 30 years nearly. Now you're a microbiologist so Mm -hmm. you're presumably very interested in, you mentioned microbes, in the microbial communities that are in there aside from the big stuff. So what are those microbes doing in this cave and how are they presumably sustaining all the other life that's in there? That's absolutely right. The microbes basically are the trees of the cave. If you think of standard ecosystem um, on the surface, trees um, fix carbon dioxide into sugars and higher molecules using photosynthesis, so they use light to fix carbon dioxide. And in the cave, on top of the surface of the water, we have uh, floating mats of bacteria. It looks like wet tissue paper, but it is actually just entirely composed of bacteria. And what they do is chemosynthesis, which is they they fix carbon dioxide at the expense of things like sulfide and ammonia that are found in the geothermal waters. And what happens then is the mat forms and things like nematodes and small amphipods in the water come along and eat it, which then in turn get eaten by other things. And that goes up the food web. This is not dissimilar to other discoveries that have been made around the world in other places, albeit obviously it's, it's unique. Um, I'm thinking of an example in South Africa a few years ago, a lady called Lisa Pratt we interviewed here on The Naked Scientist. She had a paper in Science where down a gold mine, three kilometres underground, they uncovered microbes that were surviving perhaps for 40 million years, cut off from the outside world. They were living on isotopes or radioactivity in the rock because the radioactivity was splitting water molecules, which was then attacking other minerals in the rock, releasing forms of sulphur that they could eat. So this is a sort of a correlate of that, isn't it? It's um, similar. The, um, the bacteria that sort of survive on radioisotopes are a different um, functional group, really. The bugs that are found in Movila are actually found everywhere, really. You find these sulfur-oxidising bacteria in normal soils and lakes uh, everywhere, really. Uh, also found in the deep-sea hydrothermal vents that you've already mentioned. So... What will you actually be asking in terms of the questions that, that surround this cave? Is this actually how you got the community of microbes that are there and how they established this food web? Or are there other questions about how they can inform various industries and, and economies on, on the surface now? 
Um, I guess our real um, question could be, it's an analogy really of the census that's going on today. It's sort of who lives where, what do they do, how do they relate to everything else in there, how did the mat form, what else is in the mat apart from chemosynthetic bacteria because it's actually far more complex than that. It's also full of bacteria that oxidise methane, for example, and methane and carbon dioxide are the two biggest greenhouse gases, so we're always very interested in things, bacteria that can oxidise those, particularly in the absence of light. Um, because then you don't have to, if you wanted to set up some kind of um, carbon dioxide stripping bioreactor, for example, that has been set up previously using algae, you wouldn't need to supply light for it. So it wouldn't be sort of weather dependent if you used chemosynthetic bacteria, for example. And what sorts of steps do you have to take to make sure that this pristine environment isn't spoiled by you going in and studying it? Um, the cave, for a start, is only accessible a certain number of times per year. Only a certain amount of material is allowed to be removed. The scientists we work with at the Romanian Academy and the Emil Rakovitsa Institute of Cave Sciences in Bucharest are very strict on what can and can't be done in the cave. When we go in, there's obviously a 30-metre shaft that you have to um, descend on a rope, at the bottom of which is a trapdoor which keeps out sort of outside matter. Our boiler suits are as clean as they can be. Our shoes are not in contact with outside soil. So we obviously we can't sterilise ourselves, but we do take the best steps we can not to take anything in. Richard, thank you and stay with us. That's Richard Bowden from the University of Warwick. He's been to a Movila cave in Romania where he works on the microbial communities there. If you would like to ask him any questions about what he's been discussing, email chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. Diana. Yes, it's not just rock that can block sunlight. Water does too, and you need only descend a few hundred metres to enter the aphotic zone, where sunlight is too weak for plants to photosynthesise. But there are other sources of energy on the seabed, and among them are hydrothermal vents, which harbour ecosystems found nowhere else on the Earth. Professor Paul Tyler is from Southampton University and works on understanding these systems. Hello, Paul. Hi, yeah. Right, so can you just describe what the conditions are like down there underwater around these vents? The vents were discovered because uh, scientists could not calculate the heat loss from the uh, earth um, without bringing in a convective uh, part of it. And what uh, American scientists did in 1977 um, was go down and look for convective heat loss along the mid-ocean ridge uh, that runs past the Galapagos Islands. And they found their convective heat loss with this hot water coming out of the seabed in temperatures between 200 and 300 degrees uh, centigrade. But what really astounded them was the very, very luxurious um, communities of animals found around the hydrothermal vents, um, compared to literally few tens of metres off into the adjacent deep sea where there was virtually nothing living at all. So what is the main source of energy for these life forms? What are they eating? They're not really eating in anything. The primary consumers are not eating anything. The, what's coming out of the hydrothermal vents, besides hot water, is a lot of hydrogen sulfide. Seawater, sulfate-rich seawater, percolates through the rocks of the seabed, is heated by magma, comes out of the hydrothermal vents, and that sulfate has been reduced to hydrogen sulfide. And it's the same process of chemosynthesis that occurs in the caves um, of Romania. And we see this in the free living bacteria surrounding the hydrothermal vents. But what was particularly clever at hydrothermal vents, there was a group of organisms called the tube worms. And they had no gut, no mouth, no gut and no anus. But they contained a structure called the trophosome, the so-called eating body, which was packed full of bacteria, or should I say archaea, that 
underwent the process of chemosynthesis. So how does this ecosystem come about in the first place? I mean, it sounds like there's a little bit of interdependency. I mean, how, how much of a system is it? It's independent. It's in, um, you only found these systems at hydrothermal vents. There are related systems, areas called cold seeps. But what is so clever about some of the animals is the, the, the evolutionary process allows uh, these tube worms to transport uh, oxygen, carbon dioxide and hydrogen sulfide through their um, blood system that's absorbed through the tentacles in the crown to this trophosome where these bacteria are. Now, if you inject hydrogen sulfide into an animal, the chances are you're going to kill it immediately. But there's an adaptation where the um, hydrogen sulfide is bound to a blood protein and stops it being toxic, and then it's taken through to the um, trophosome where the bacteria um, undergo the process of chemosynthesis internally within the animal, and then they release organic matter. So the animal itself is still a heterotroph. It is the bacteria um, that live within this trophosome within the animal that is autotrophic. I see. So they're making good use of their situation. But how different are these species different to ones that we find just, you know, every day around the surface of the Earth? Very different indeed. For a start, they're, they're, they're specialised. Um, the tube worms particularly are specialised, but there are a number of animal groups you find large bivalves, and there's a, a, a muscle that looks not unlike the muscle you might find you know, on the seashore around Britain, but it's a muscle that has these bacteria in its gill. And so it can take in um, hydrogen sulfide, um, CO2 and oxygen over the gill surface and the bacteria produce this organic matter. So that's just adapted to the hydrothermal vent. We find other bivalves do the same. Um, and if you come over into the Atlantic, there is a shrimp. I, I suppose you know when you eat shrimp in a, in a restaurant, you tear off the head part and you eat the abdomen. Well, if you look at the, the main thorax of these shrimp in the Atlantic, they have bacteria growing underneath the carapace, the covering um, of the animal. And then they appear to take those bacteria off and move them to the mouth uh, for ingestion. Right, so these bacteria are really getting around all of the species down there then. But why do we need to learn about these systems? Why are they important? There's, there's a number of reasons um, why, why they're interesting. Firstly, you know, one of the, the, the interests has been was this the cradle of life? Were these hydrothermal vents where the first molecules, should we say, the first organic molecules were, were formed? Um, that, that's a, an ongoing question that still remains a long way from being resolved, of course. But they, they um, might well have been uh, the um, uh, refuges of, for life during if, the, if there was really a snowball earth at one time. And also, they have some very interesting properties in terms of potential biotechnology. If these um, enzymes that are in these animals are working at you know, slightly higher temperatures than normal, they might have some biotechnological use. But there's a lot of other interesting scientific questions in terms of these are relatively isolated spots along the mid-ocean ridge. Um, and as a reproductive ecologist, I'm interested in how animals reproduce, disperse, and colonize new hydrothermal vents. And that's been a really ongoing question about 
how these communities maintain themselves. Almost like castaways. Well, thanks, Paul. That was Paul Tyler from Southampton University. Another source of energy for deep-sea species is the bodies of whales and other animals that fall to the seabed. Nick Higgs from the University of Leeds researches whale fossils, which show telltale signs of a much smaller creature that could hold the key to why there's a gap in the evolutionary record of whales. They're called Ossidax worms, which means bone devourer in Latin. They range in size from about the size of your finger to maybe the size of one of your joints. They look more like little palm trees, really. They have what we call roots that grow into the bone and dissolve it away and eat the bone. And then they have this long trunk that sticks up out of the bone. And out of that trunk are four palps, which are like kind of like palm tree branches, but they're bright red to pink. And those are the gills of the animal. Those are how it gets oxygen out of the water. They sound quite beautiful, actually, but the way you've described them, they sound extremely destructive. Have you found evidence of these worms in whale fossils? Some scientists have, yes, from fossils in Washington State in the USA. And we're currently investigating some other fossils from Italy. There are some exciting signs, but it requires a bit more work. When you went down to Kent, you got the call, you went to see the stranded sperm whale. What did you get out of it, or what did you want from it? Well, we were going down to get some bones that we could put on the seabed to try and find some of these Ossidax worms. And we came back successfully with a whole flipper, which has got several nice bones in it that the worms like. The flipper is currently at the Natural History Museum before being deployed. But inside Leeds University's paleontology lab clean room, Nick can study other animal bone samples where Ossidax worms were also found. Several jars here. The sort that you'd expect to see a lot of chutney in. Sponge-like in appearance. This was from an elephant seal carcass that was put down in the same area that they'd previously sank the whale carcasses, to see if these worms would also like the bones of other animals as well. So we're starting to think that they might have a much bigger impact on the fossil record of not just whales, but any marine vertebrate. Right, well, let's take a couple of these jars back in, out of the clean room, away from the noise of the fume cupboard, and into the lab... What am I looking for? I'm not going to see any worms in this, am I? No, you may just see some of their tubes hanging out of the bone because they tend to dry up in the alcohol. They don't quite look as magnificent as they do in real life. But can you see here these kind of parchment-like bits sticking out of the bone? Those are the these tubes. tiny little yeah, tiny. tube almost look like sort of rolled up spider's webs. Yeah, yeah. They've kind of decomposed because they've been in the jar for so long. You can see there's several small holes on the bone. And I don't know if you can just tell, if I change the light slightly, there's a kind of mottled colour to the bone surface. I can see that, yeah. Uh, that's the extent of where they've bored away the bone underneath the surface. So all that black area is where the bone has been eaten away. Why is it so important to know the effect that your bone-eating worms have on a whale? Is it purely so that you know that you've got the correct age of a whale fossil, or is it more sort of basic than that? Do they have such a, an effect on it that you can't necessarily tell what the creature is or, or when it was from? Exactly. Within 10 years, they may be able to eat away whole bones, so in which case we'd have no record of that whale ever existing. Whereas in some whales, like the one I'm investigating in Italy, 
a lot of the bones were found and couldn't really be properly described because they were so mangled and partially destroyed by these worms. And what I'm really interested in is, is figuring out whether the gaps in the fossil record of whales may be caused by these worms. There's a significant period in the evolution of whales when they become ocean-going, um, when they move away from shallow habitats. And we get this gap in the, in the record, which is incredibly tantalising, because at the next stage after this gap, you start to see what we know as is, is the ancestors of, of modern whales, the tooth whales and the baleen whales. But there's, there's this tantalising gap when they started moving out into open water, which is exactly when the carcasses would have started arriving in the deep sea. Nick Higgs from the University of Leeds, who's hoping to discover whether Ossidax worms are responsible for the gap in the fossil records of whales. And you can hear a longer version of that interview with Sue Nelson on the current edition of Planet Earth podcast. You can download the podcast from Planet Earth Online or the Naked Scientists website. Thanks, Diana. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. And we're joined today by microbiologist Rich Bowden and marine scientist and ecologist Paul Tyler. We're talking about life in places which are hard to reach. And I've uh, got a great question here for you, Rich. I guess this one is, is ideal for you because Silverwing Benoit, who's listening to us in Second Life, says, can bacteria that live on radioisotopes help to eliminate or break down radiation? I guess this is relevant because of what's going on in Japan. Yeah, well, as far as I know, it's not really my field. They don't actually break down the isotope. The isotope naturally decays and then the bacteria harness the energy from that rather than the bacteria forcing the decay to happen. It will still happen at its natural rate. Although some people say that it's possible to use microbes to either sequester radioisotopes into insoluble forms oh, which yeah. pose less threat or to break down things which are in a radioactive form that's harder to clean up into one that's easier to clean up. Yeah, mineralization of radioisotopes has been, such as uranium compounds, can be done by um, thiobacilli, for example. They will oxidize the uranium into an insoluble form which is much easier to remove from um, solution, for example. It's been used in biomining. Uh, this is a question for Paul. Jimmy Kate on Twitter, uh, at Naked Scientist, if you'd like to send us a tweet, says, how do we actually get samples up from the deep sea? Um, the, the traditional methods have been to collect with trawl and um, things called box cores. Um, but if we're working on something like hydrothermal vents, uh, we go down in a submersible, uh, which dies for anything between 8 to 20 hours on the seabed. And then uh, more recently, over the last 10 years, there's been a massive development of what are called remote-operated vehicles. And these are um, vehicles the size of a large car, but with a battery of cameras um, and connected to the mothership uh, by the fibre-optic cable. So you get images in real time from the seabed and you can collect samples with the manipulator arms and then everything's brought back to the, the surface. Terrific, thank you. Um, Jesse Jones has been in touch on Facebook, nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, and says, have any links been found, Paul, be- between global warming and life around hydrothermal vents? Since vents themselves can vary in their output of warm water, would life forms near them be more capable of coping with warming waters compared with other living things? That, that's an interesting question because um, one of the great misconceptions is that the animals living at hydrothermal vents um, are living at very high temperatures because the water coming out of vents is you know, up to 407 degrees Celsius. But the, most of the animals living at hydrothermal vents live at temperatures between 5 and 20 degrees Celsius. And that's the same sort of temperature that you would get in the waters around the southern part of Britain um, from winter through to summer. So the, in many ways, there's no special adaptation 
to the temperature per se. The clever adaptation really is to the use of hydrogen sulphide. Uh, and Rich, this is probably one for you. John in Colchester says, is it only the very basic forms of life that could live on nutrients and gases that are alternatives to oxygen, or could an alien work this way? Uh, I suppose anything's possible, but um, I mean, many bacteria use things instead of oxygen, such as nitrate or metals. Um, I don't think it's been found in eukarya, so plants and animals, yet. But um, bacteria and archaea can certainly do it. Thank you very much, Rich. Well, we've probably run out of time to go through any more questions because we've got a pretty serious question for you, Diana, with our question of the week, which is a pretty full-on question, you would say. You could say that, but then again, I could take offence because actually this week we've got quite a weighty issue. Hi, Naked Scientists. This is Taylor Sharp from Vancouver calling. And I had a question about the Earth and gravitational forces. I'm wondering which part of the Earth experiences the most and the least gravity? Thank you very much. So how can we find the most gravitationally strong places on or even inside the Earth? Hi, I'm Dominic Ford from the Department of Physics in Cambridge. The principle of physics that you need to work out the gravitational field around the distribution of matter is Newton's law of gravity. And what that says is that every piece of matter in the universe attracts every other piece of matter in the universe with a force that decreases with the distance between the two masses, but it increases with the mass of those objects. So when it comes to the whole Earth, you have to add up the forces from all of the little bits that make up the sphere of the Earth to work out what the total net force is. And that's actually a mathematical problem that gave Newton quite a headache when he was formulating his law of gravity. And it led him to pioneer a new mathematical technique that we call calculus to add up those little forces. But even though the math itself is quite tricky, it's fairly easy to see roughly what the answer must look like. Because if you imagine that you burrow down into the Earth, you've then got some of the Earth above your head and the rest of it below your feet. Whereas before, the whole Earth was pulling you in one direction downwards. So when you burrow down into the Earth, the gravitational forces are cancelling out. And that means there must be a weaker gravitational field down inside the Earth than there is on the surface. And similarly, if you travel upwards into space or climb a high mountain, then the Earth is further away, and that means its gravitational pull is weaker, and so you will weigh less. Standing at the top of Mount Everest might make you feel a little bit lighter, and that's in more than, more, more than one way, I think. Um, but what might make us feel a stronger pull? There are variations in the gravitational field across the surface of the Earth, and that's actually a way that people look at the geology and the rocks that the Earth is made of. So if you're looking for a particular kinds of rock, you can look for variations in the strength of gravity that tell you that you've got denser rocks or less dense rocks, and that might tell you about the rock composition below your feet. The Earth does bulge out at its equator, but in fact the amount by which it bulges out is exactly the right amount to cancel out the centrifugal force from the Earth's rotation. So in terms of the downward force that you feel, it's the same all over the surface of the Earth. 
certain rocks give certain areas of the Earth a stronger gravitational pull, and the bulge at the Earth's equator counteracts the centrifugal force of the Earth's rotation. Sounds simple. On Facebook, Stephen Donkin said that you should place your bathroom scales on the roof rather than in the basement. Sean Hoskins said that the naked scientists ought to fund a field trip for listeners to travel the globe to find out. I like Uh, that one. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you can pay me more as well. Uh, But alas, as Imat Fall said on the forum, data from the Goethe satellite has already shown that the strongest gravitational pull is at the poles and the weakest is at the equator. And I have to acknowledge Rexel on our forum, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, who says, excited for the show, can't wait for uh, the answer to come out. He's a fan in the Philippines, apparently. (laughs) Thank you very much. And moving from the bathroom scales to the bathroom shower now. Hi, Diana. This is Francis Tapon, and I have your question of the week. I'm in Croatia, and I'm having a debate with my friend about water heaters. I have a water heater in my bathroom. I take one shower per day. I set it at just the right level so that it gives me just enough hot water for a five-minute shower, no more. I don't turn it on until the next day when I follow the same ritual. My friend says I'm being inefficient. I'm not saving enough energy. He says I should leave the boiler on 24 hours a day because it takes a minimal amount of energy to keep the water hot once it's hot. If I turn it off, the water cools and then must be reheated from scratch, requiring far more energy than if I had left it on all the time. So who's right? So what is the most efficient way to heat water? Leave it on all the time or just heat what you need? Let us know by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can contact us on Twitter with at Naked Scientists. You can Facebook us or you can write on the forum and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Now, Chris, I've got a quick question here for you. It's from Amara Khan on Facebook and uh, she asks, how do things emit light by giving off photons? Do they produce new ones or just release ones that were already there? What they're doing is using a chemical reaction to excite a molecule. When you excite a molecule, you give some energy to the electrons that orbit around that molecule in the atoms. Those electrons get kicked up to a higher energy state temporarily, and they then lose the excess energy again by falling to their original starting position, and the energy that they lose, they give out as a photon of light. So that's how you then spit out light if you're an organism that glows underwater like a jellyfish, for example. So there you go. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening to The Naked Scientists. And thank you to our guests, Leonard Zon, Rich Bowden and Paul Tyler, who joined us as our guests this week. And our production team, Mira Sintalingam, Dave Ansell, Ben Vowsler and uh, also James, who's standing in for Tom Simpkins this week. Next week, we're celebrating the anniversary of the first mobile phone call. It was made on the 3rd of April, 1973, in New York. So we'll look at some of the latest technology for high-speed mobile internets and also find out how scientists are studying the potential risks of the mobile phone to our health. Join us, please, if you can. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. 
the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.